G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Lazy, good for nothing, the sluggard. Uh, that reluctant, did you catch it from the readings there? That reluctant, useless character who refuses to make any meaningful effort in his or her life. Uh, that's our confronting theme for today, as you no doubt picked up from those two readings from the book of Proverbs. Uh, but I'd like to begin actually not with the sluggard, but with some very old words from a bloke named John Ruskin from the 19th century, um, his words about the productive life, the productive life, which sets, I guess, the sluggard in a slightly broader frame. What I really like about Ruskin's words uh, is the way that he has this sense of how much of a big deal meaningful work is to us as people. Uh, and by meaningful work, I don't just mean your employment, like if you've got a job. No, you might be a mum, you might be, it might be a productive retirement that you're talking about, whatever it is. But Ruskin grasps very firmly that when meaningfulness, a sense of purpose, when it is not there, when it is absent how a lack of meaning does kind of rot our souls, if that's not too dramatic a way um, to put it. So he starts with this. He says, wise work, wise work is useful. No man minds its being hard, if only it comes to something. But when it is hard and comes to nothing, when all of our bees business, as in buzzing little bees, when all of our bees business turns to spiders and for honeycomb we have only resultant cobweb, blown away by the next breeze. That is the cruel thing for the worker. At Ruskin, he goes a step further actually, he said it's not just cruel if our work turns out to be meaningless, he says it, it's a kind of death if you think about it to have given yourself to meaningless work. It is a way of killing a man or a woman to give them meaningless work. And his logic runs like this. He says, if I spend my life, that's the way we say it, isn't it? If I spend my life at a thing and that thing proves to be thoroughly useless, absolutely inconsequential, if it has been rendered a total waste of time, it is... It's like my, my life has been poured out for nothing. You've killed me. It's been worthless. He, he says it like this. He says, of all wastes, the greatest waste that you can commit is the waste of labour. If you went down in the morning into your dairy and you found that your youngest child had got down before you and that he and the cat were at play together and that they and that he had poured out all the cream on the floor for the cat to lap up. You would scold the child and be sorry the milk was wasted. But if instead, instead of wooden bowls with milk in them, there are golden bowls with human life in them, and instead of the cat to play with them, the devil to play with, and instead of leaving that golden bowl you break it in the dust and pour the human blood out on the ground for the fiend to lick up. What? You perhaps think to waste the labour of men is not to kill them? 
Is it not? I should like to know how you could kill them more utterly. It's the slightest way of killing to stop a man's breath. But if you put him to useless labour, if you bind his thoughts, if you blind his eyes, if you blunt his hopes, if you steal his joys, if you stunt his body and blast his soul and at last leave him not so much as to reap the poor fruit of his degradation, but gather that for yourself and dismiss him to the grave. This, you think, is no waste? That's a heavy way to start, isn't it? (laughs) How do we live a life of meaning? How do we spend our lives for something of purpose and something of meaning, for something that matters? Folks, our theme today... uh, this morning is the sluggard in the book of Proverbs uh, as we continue our series in Proverbs and in many ways he is this laughably unmotivated slob of a character who wastes his life, who comes to nothing, in fact who comes to worse than nothing, we'll get to that. But how about we pray right now because I think we want to hear in God's word in Proverbs a timely word for us, don't we, about how to spend our lives and what remains of our days, what we labour and strive over, where we might need to begin to learn the wisdom for life by beginning with the fear of the Lord. So how about we come before God now in prayer? Please pray with me. Our Father God in heaven, as we come to hear your message to us from the pages of Scripture and in this sermon as it's preached, we look forward, O God, to the timeless wisdom of our Heavenly Father, of our working God, on how to live in this world. But Father, we are also painfully aware as we come to these words, aware that there is such a thing as a wasted life, as missed opportunities, even of sinful neglect of the things that we should be on about or could be about or might have given ourselves to. So Father, would you please guide us toward a firm grasp of what a life well spent could look like for us, for each of us personally. And to that end, would you please, well, would you enable me to speak with clarity and insight, even persuasiveness? And would you enable each of us uh, to listen with care and with attention uh, and with courage, perhaps even, for facing hard truths, if that need be the case? Uh, lead us all this morning, please, into the truth of Christ and into a true and fitting reverence before our Lord and Saviour Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, let's begin right back at the beginning. For a long time now, a long time, we, that is to say humankind, I don't just mean us as a church, uh, we have found our work to be a lot harder than it ought to be. That's the Bible's view of it. Uh, not just our jobs, but every effort and striving, how we contribute to our world. Yes, for a very long time, we've found our work to be much harder than ever it was designed to be. So may I remind you of these words from the very beginning, actually, from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. Do you remember those uh, where we read, to Adam, the Lord said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, 
you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Uh, Those verses, don't they, they consign us to a slog that we're well acquainted with in life. They consign us to a slog in life, but they do not consign us to being sluggards in our working life. Our efforts may prove hard, but they need not be hopeless. That's the Bible's way of looking at it. Um, Here's where we're headed today, folks. Three things. Firstly, I'd like to introduce us to this sluggard character. We'll do that in just a moment as we uh, review some of what Jack read to us and, and look some more at this sluggard character from the book of Proverbs. He is, I want to say, as hilarious as he is hopeless. Um, there's a, it's one of those comic moments where we, we get a little window on ourselves. We'll look at both his character uh, and the consequences of, of life that way. Um, secondly, though, I'll put it to us that the sluggard's character which is to say our character in a way, contrasts in the worst possible way with the character of our God and the character of all of his saving works. Secondly, um, our God is no sluggard, you see. And Jesus was saved, has saved, uh, sorry, he has saved us through a self-sacrificial slog. There was nothing sluggardly uh, about Christ. Uh, But lastly, I hope to show us that Christ's service, it isn't just exemplary or, you know, this awesome example, although it was that, and it isn't just effective for saving us, although it was that as well, but it is also empowering. Empowering for you and me as we live in this world where serving is a hard slog sometimes and where we are sorely tempted into the way of the sluggard from time to time. Uh, to our ruin and with uh, horrible results for our world if we pursue that way. Shall we meet the sluggard? Let's begin there. Let's meet the sluggard. Uh, Please turn with me to the book of Proverbs, um, if you have it on your lap, and Proverbs chapter 6 is where we begin. We meet the sluggard in these two or perhaps three little unflattering, deeply unflattering portraits uh, there in the book of Proverbs, plus another dozen or so um, scattered verses across the book of Proverbs. Um, how about we just read the, a couple of the portraits that are painted for us there, the first one in chapter 6, and then uh, in chapter 26, we'll skip over the one Jack read in chapter 24, and just the whole way that it's set up, and see what you make of these portraits. There's probably a sense in which we resist the thought that we have anything at all in common with such a hopeless character. Is, is that the way it gets you feeling, this slob of a sluggard here? Proverbs chapter 6, please read with me there. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in summer and gathers, gathers its food at harvest. We'll keep reading, but just lest we miss the force of that. Do you see what that's saying there to the sluggard? Ants are doing better than you at life. Is that what it's saying there to the sluggard? They are just, like they plan better than you uh, and they actually work, get this, even when the boss walks out the door and says, I won't see you again till, till Monday morning. But they keep working, fancy that. In fact, they, they, they have no boss in the office. And yet they work diligently. Anyway, ants are doing better at life than you, O sluggard. 
Uh, Let's keep reading though. Verse 9, by contrast. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You almost yawn as you say it, don't you? And poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. Uh, Here's the other portrait. Come with me to chapter 26, would you please? Chapter 26 of Proverbs. Again, equally unflattering. Chapter 26 and pick it up from verse 12 of Proverbs there. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. Wait, what, what, what do you think that verse means? Uh, there's another one like it, actually, in Proverbs um, 22, verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside or I'll be murdered in the streets. What's he saying there? Uh, well, as I've been dwelling over it this week, friends, uh, I think I know exactly what it means and I suspect you do too. Have you ever met a person who creates the most implausible excuses to rationalise why they haven't got the job done? Have you ever met someone like that? Why they haven't got that thing done still? Why they have let you down again? And they come up with the most implausible... This is the equivalent of the dog ate my homework. Do you see? (laughs) For them, any blip becomes this insurmountable hurdle, so everything stalls and nothing gets done. Whereas, here's the contrast, have we got this? Proverbs 15, verse 19. The way of the sluggard, oh, is blocked by thorns. But the path of the upright is a highway. Let us get on with it. A ride over all the bumps, it seems that they're cruising at this amazing speed. Anyway, we've digressed. Come back with me to the portrait there in chapter 26. So, from verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. See, door hinges, always moving, never going anywhere. And perhaps they squeak a lot in the process as well. I'm not sure if that's intended as part of the metaphor. Uh, Here comes my favourite verse though, verse 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. You can basically do the work for him and he'll still stuff it up. You've handed it to him on a plate, perhaps literally, and he might yet starve of, like die of starvation. The sluggard, verse 16, is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer directly. Now, have we got a little bit of a sense of the, the sluggard there? Do we, can we see his portrait in our mind's eye? Uh, to summarise, I think Derek Kidner puts it better than I Uh, Ken, when he says the sluggard in Proverbs is a figure of tragicomedy, right? Blending tragedy and comedy. The sluggard in Proverbs is a a figure of tragicomedy with his sheer animal laziness, his preposterous excuses and his final helplessness. He will not begin things. He will not finish things. He will not face things. Consequently, he's restless. But Kidna keeps going and and see what you make of this. He says, the wise man knows that the sluggard is no freak. He is rather, as often as not, 
an ordinary man, or woman I suppose, he is often as not an ordinary man who has made too many excuses, too many refusals and too many postponements. It has all been as imperceptible and as pleasant as falling asleep. Folks, to that end, I have a handful of confessions that I should probably make. And I share these with you to perhaps put modern flesh on these sluggardly bones. Confession number one, uh, coming on three months now, I've been meaning to get our current year's church directory, you know, our little church contacts book. Coming on three months now, uh, I've been meaning, planning, intending to get that out and published. And you might well say it has been as a dish of food before me with my hand buried in it. Is it that much more difficult to get it to my mouth, to send it to the printers and get it into your hands? But have I made the time? Confession number one, turns out your pastor's a sluggard, friends. <laughs> Confession number two, there's actually one person whose name's on our books, on our church roll, um, and since I've arrived, uh, they're not here today, by the way, don't, don't worry in case you're wondering. Um, since I arrived, um, they haven't been at church in four years. I've never met them. I've never spoken to them. And here's where the shame comes. I've never even called them on the phone. Do you know why I haven't called them? I think it boils down to this as I re reflect on myself. I'm kind of worried that they'll be scary. Have you ever put off a phone call for that reason? Which, even as I say it, I know it sounds ludicrous. There's a lion in the street. There's a lion in the road. I'll be murdered in the street. Confession number two. Confession number three. Though I can see with my eyes as well as you can, and I'm sure this was a metaphor that, that very much came to our eyes, uh, I can see with my eyes that ants know how to store food when, uh, when the going's good. They make hay while the sun shines, as my grandfather used to say. I, on the other hand, still have not figured out that if I leave my Christmas shopping too late, then there is literally no postal option fast enough, no matter how much I'm willing to pay, that will get those gifts delivered on time. Proverbs 20 verse 4. A sluggard does not plough in season, so at harvest time he looks but finds nothing. Confession number four. Let's stop at four because otherwise it's just going to be silly, isn't it? Uh, confession number four. I, I have several friends, I, I wonder if you're the same. Uh, they seem to live at a pace or achieve things, that's really the thing, achieve things at such a pace that just amazes me. Do you have friends like this? Every single time I look, they are doing something inspiring, something new, something amazing, which I thought was not only beyond them, but beyond any sort of normal mortal person. Uh, but, and here comes the irony. How do I find out about their latest exploits? Well, it happens as I peruse their efforts on social media. It takes a lot of time to peruse their efforts on social media, you see. Where do they find the time to do all of those amazing things? Scroll, scroll, scroll. Gosh, how do they make time in their lives to achieve all of those interesting things and learn how to do them so well? Scroll, scroll, scroll. Do you see the irony, folks? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11. He who works his land, will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. 
Proverbs 13 verse 4, the sluggard craves and gets nothing. But the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Now, why the confessions? It's because I reckon Derek Kidner is right about what Proverbs is telling us, that the sluggard is not far from each one of us. Uh, The wise man knows that the sluggard is no freak, as often as not an ordinary man or woman who's made too many excuses, too many refusals and too many postponements. It has all been as imperceptible and as pleasant as falling asleep. I mean to, I suppose, put the sluggard in terms that perhaps we can relate to and see ourselves in, but also because I reckon Proverbs is right when it tells us what a mess sluggards make of our world. So in Proverbs 18 verse 9, there's this startling proverb, one who is slack in his work, so there's the sluggard, is brother to one who destroys. Proverbs is telling us that sluggards make our world a worse place to be as we let one another down, even when they hand it to us on a plate, as we make all the excuses in the world and don't come up with what we ought to have done, as we apply ourselves to craving instead of to work. So let me hit us with, uh, with three realisations then from Proverbs. Firstly, I boldly put it to you, not that you are the sluggard, right? None of us is that bad. That's the idea of the portrait. It's supposed to be comic. It's supposed to be ridiculous. None of us is the sluggard, but don't we each have a bit of that sluggardly disease within us, don't we? We are sluggish to do what's right. We do less or we do half or we make excuses or we put it off and our world is poorer for it. The people around us are poorer for it. Our faith is poorer for it. We are poorer for it, perhaps even literally. That's firstly. Secondly, Proverbs would teach us out of our sluggardly ways. Is that what we read last week in the opening verses of Proverbs uh, from chapter 1 there? I think Proverbs desires that we we learn the way out of sluggardly ways, isn't it? So in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, we read, here it is, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and and what are Proverbs good for? Verse 2, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, here we go, verse 3, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. Isn't that exactly what the wise have over the lazy, a disciplined and prudent life? Uh, but, But thirdly, From within Proverbs, where do we even begin to find the disciplined and prudent life? And I want to say from within Proverbs, it is not from learning to pull our socks up a little higher. It is not even from admiring those wise ones and their words and their works and their diligence. No, but verse 7, we read this again last week, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, we begin our way out of sluggardliness by adoring the saving wisdom of our God. Verse 7, this is where we begin, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now, what is that saying? That is to say, 
It is only as we begin, we can only begin to unravel our sluggardliness or any other aspect of our foolishness in life as we come to revere our dependable and faithful, our God whose saving track record has never let his people down. That's where we have to begin. These are his ways, ways of true diligence. So in Proverbs chapter 8, here's the portrait not of the wise man, but of God. And just listen to the orderliness, the structure, the diligence, the keeping at it. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27, when God set the heavens in place, listen to him work here. When he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth and on chapter 8 goes and the image i'm saying that you get of god from the book of proverbs is of this almighty lord who has never done a sluggardly thing in his life in his existence who has never cut a corner never shrunk back from doing the hard thing never fallen asleep or just kind of forgotten or left off doing the slog or the timely thing or what was needed Perhaps phrases like this should come to our mind. Say in Exodus chapter 6, we read God speaking, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And he did, didn't he, in the Exodus? These are the saving non-sluggardly works of our God. Or Deuteronomy chapter 7 in verse 8 say, it was because the Lord loved you and what did he do? Kept the oath he made, he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. If you depend on the Lord's work, oh, it'll get done. If you depend on him, oh, it'll happen, even if it's a slog. Uh, Let's have a look at these words together. Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is his servant, that is Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. So he moaned about it like a sluggard, got nothing done, made his excuses when it all got too hard. Is that what he did? No. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Describing our Lord Jesus in advance as he went to the cross for us to give his very life. See, folks, I'm convinced that the Lord Jesus is the remedy to every force in this world and every force within our own hearts, every inclination within us that drives us to resist the diligent, faithful, helpful life of service that God would call us to. So when Christ came into the world, these were his words and this was his way. John chapter 4, verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Wow. Lastly, and let's, uh, let's conclude with this. Uh, would you please come with me to the book of Ephesians? Um, come with me there to the, book of, to the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. And just to uh, some verses in in chapter 2 there. Uh, but before I read that, can I answer a question maybe lurking in your mind? 
Um, it may not be, I don't know, but I'd, I'd just like to address this question in case it is. And it's this, why have I chosen to preach on the topic of the sluggard to my congregation at this moment of time and in this season of life? I'd, I'd just like to say clearly, it's not because I have any sense that I look out upon a church of sluggards. I want to say that very clearly. It is not that I feel that I look out upon a church of sluggards. It is really a thing of joy to me, actually. It's a, it is a massive encouragement, and to Katie as well, the way that we work unto the Lord in this congregation, the way that we pitch in and we give and we strive together in this congregation, uh, the, the way that I see us give, not just monetarily, although monetarily as well, uh, the dedication that I see to the ministry of prayer for one another, the, the times that I um, see some of us, or many of us really, serving in areas of our church life where we just don't feel cut out for it. And it is a slog and it is hard and it doesn't feel like exactly the, the mix, the quite the fit that I'm totally built for, but look, I will give it a go and I see this all the time. I'll give it a go because I'm convinced it needs doing and I'm convinced it's worth doing. I see this sort of unfold before my very eyes. It's a massive encouragement. May I say, those are not the traits of a sluggard. No, if there is a reason uh, to choose this theme at this time and this season for us, it's partly actually for our encouragement uh, and to recognise and celebrate work that honours Jesus and to say, let's do it all the more, because it is a beautiful thing, it is a thing that mends our world rather than wounding our world. But perhaps also it's this as well. It's to anchor our every effort in God's service and not in ourselves. Is that more the risk for us in all of our diligence, that we would rather anchor our every effort in ourselves rather than in our gracious God who has worked salvation for us. No, I want to encourage us to anchor our every effort in God's service, not in ourselves, but rather in him and in his work for us and in us. You see, we learn his ways and his wisdom and his work because he has worked and he's working and will always work before us, ahead of us, for us, uh, his children. So, with all of that said, let's just read these few verses from Ephesians and then we're going to pray. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. How about we pray together, brothers and sisters? Oh, our great God, our creator God, whose hands built our majestic world piece by piece. Oh God, our sustaining God, whose hands, even now, are attentive to our world's every need. Oh God, our redeeming God, whose hands have borne nails, have done the hard slog, even to the cross of Calvary, and that for us. Our great God, in view of your ways and your wisdom, what a mess our words and our works and our excuses look besides yours. How meagre our willingness besides Christ's. How pale and thin our grit and stickability and dependability when we consider the empowering role that you have given your spirit in our lives. Father, may the good works that you have prepared for each of us, may they be many. And if they are hard, or rather when they are hard, may we walk in them anyway. Where they are beyond us or where they seem beyond us, may we go in your strength and with your enabling. But may we go, Father, in this security, the secure knowledge that even our faith is not of ourselves, that from beginning to end we are the handiwork of a heavenly Father who knows how to remake and repair what has been messed up. May we know your every grace to us as a gift. May we receive it as such with thankfulness and with the kind of generosity that then wants to share it with the world around us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.